Okay, we're going. Okay, very good. So let's begin at this point here. Uh, welcome to Angel Wing and welcome to the uh, various uh, recordings and, and, uh, and, and teachings of Dr. Elizabeth Berman. Uh, we are very, very happy to have her uh, continue her um, giving of her insights, giving of her various perspectives on many different areas and many, many, uh, many different uh, perspectives on, on psychology. Uh, so today we want to continue our exploration uh, into uh, the many areas that we have been talking about. So as a continuation of our dialogue from Sunday, and I have some questions for you and uh, just to let you know that we were, uh, we had gone into the whole question of attachments and we kind of may have, may have talked about this before also, but there was quite a bit of uh, discussion uh, and as well as probing into the nature of attachment. Uh, you know, uh, there, some people said there's positive attachments, there's negative attachments. Some people said there's a state beyond attachment. And, and, then, and then of course the way uh, energies move uh, within the system as well as uh, the uh, way the mind gets focused in any kind of attachment, particularly psychologically with regards to people, uh, different, different other kinds of experiences we are attached to. Um, so maybe we can begin with this uh, at this point uh, as a continuation from our, our Sunday dialogue. And that would be, what is the nature of attachment? You know, when you hear the word attachment as a psychologist, uh, obviously there are many, many different ways of looking at it. What is predominant in your mind? What would you like to share with our audience uh, regarding uh, your perspective on this? Well, the first thing that comes to mind within the context of as a psychologist is how in developmental psychology uh, we look at the what, what I'm going to call bonding experience of the newborn with the primary caregivers, whether that's yes. the mother, the father, the grandma, who the I'm going so I'm going to say primary caregiver, right? Yes. To to identify that that's the behavioral role that's critical, right. and it transcends gender, age. It transcends all the other variables. So in that exchange of energy, right, between the newborn and the primary caregiver, um, the, the newborn begins to receive sensory information. Perhaps the first is the gazing into the eyes. Yeah, of exactly. the primary caregiver. And then there are many, you know, if the, if the infant is nursed, there's the experience of, you know, um, body temperature, nourishment, milk, mother's milk coming into the body. So in the, there, it's very much linked to senses. Mm -hmm. And then as time goes on, psychologists look at what, so an attachment is formed. Right, and, and we can postulate, even though the newborn's brain is not really wired to think in more abstract ways, perhaps there's um, a life-affirming 
awareness that understands there needs to be something here so I can be cared for. Yes, yes. And which, is, which is kind of establishing a secure base. Yes, yes. So, so, there, so there, there are many different developments that occur in infants and uh, there are many different attachment passive, uh, patterns. Yes. So there's secure attachment and then there's also things like avoidant attachment, anxious attachment, uh, so various things can happen right at, at that child at, at that time, but there is some. But there's. It seems to be there is a need to develop a secure base. Yes, in in some ways, I think some people um, have talked about it as though we are hardwired to be in relationship. That right. that perhaps even on a one to one level we don't exist outside of relationship. We understand ourselves as humans. It, it requires being reflected, responded to by another to, to even come to grips with, well, I exist, and therefore um, that has consequences. And we right, begin... Because, because, there, because there's no formation of what we call the psychological me. Yeah. I am, our sense of identity development, which eventually happens in teenage and things like that. All of that is only possible in relation to caregivers, family, friends, other individuals. In fact, the, the, the sense of identity cannot develop without others. Yes, so, so the, the critical, I think, term there is relation to or relationship. Right. and how critical that is to the human species. Um, I, I'm not going to postulate, you know, across species, but it's probably true in most species. Yeah. So, so yes, the, this sense of belonging that, that, that forms into an, an identity is always in relationship to the other. So, that relationship then, because the original question was attachment, yeah, that, exactly. that relationship of that experience of being in relationship is greatly influenced by those very, very early experiences where our brains are being wired in ways that um, give us some sort of identity. And important to note right now that identity comes from the other not for me as an infant or a newborn so so as a, as a child is growing up and developing this you know because we're living in human society there is this sense of me in relation to others all of that is go, is happening and then into adulthood or in the young adulthood and, and moving forward there seems to be this development of what we might call entanglements or harmful attachments. Uh, how would you distinguish between an entangled bound state versus an attachment straight state that is free? Okay. So <clears throat> attachment, right, is an energy just because everything's an energy. So and as energies go, there are continuums of basically the energy spectrum, but even within the spectrum, there are continuums within 
the different kinds of energies. So attachments can be, uh, it, it, to use your term, the entanglement can have the quality of attachment that is greatly, has a great component of fear in it. If you don't love me, if you don't like me, if I don't please you, something bad will happen. Now, I would say that most of the time, that's in the subconscious. And okay. it's just the kind of immediate sensory input we're feeling in an interaction with that being. And the interaction can be in our minds, you know, imagining what could happen or trying to recall what did happen. But what, I, what you're talking in terms of entanglements, I understand as relationship, which again, def I define myself in relationship, whether it's conscious or not. Relationships that are fraught with a lot of fear energy in them um, end up being... Very challenging, let's put it that way. I'm trying to stay away from good and bad because energies are energies. It's what we do with them that, that, that has good or bad outcomes, right? So really, really challenging. Um, we talk, and, and, and in psychology, we talk about boundaries, you know? So if everything, our whole identity is tied up in relationship, in, in however we're perceiving ourselves in these different relationships, that the, the idea of being able to take care of ourselves, being able to own enough power to feel that I can make choices that will keep me protected and let me grow, yes. we need to have healthy boundaries. I, another way of saying that is, how much access do I give people in relationship to me, to who I am? How much power do I give them to tell me who I am and to rate me as, and I'll use terms I don't particularly like, as good or bad or helpful or selfish. You know, we have all these terms that have more or less contracted or expansive energy in them. Yes, so... From hearing what you're saying, it seems like from childhood to teenage, etc., there's this personal identity that begins to develop. And then the separation with others is seen. So there is an enclosure in a sense, it seems like, that this is me, this is you. There's a clear sense of the me, my wants, my beliefs, my likes, my dislikes, the things that are important to me. All of that begins to develop. And then that eventually becomes more solid. It's not completely solid, but begins to solidify to some extent into a personality. Yes, yes. So, so their psychology has a term separation individuation phase. So right. we, as a human species, we can talk about a developmental progression through life that we have to, in some ways, separate from this melded identity we have early on with the primary caregiver. So, you know, we hear about the terrible twos, which now my um, 
child is telling me his daughter, my granddaughter's going through the terrible two plus three, maybe a divorce. <laughs> but you can see she's exercising her will in a way that she's testing the boundaries of what can I do and still be loved? What can I do and still be safe? And that happens again in the teenage years, and perhaps it even happens again in adulthood, but maybe we don't identify it in the same way. Because at some point over the trajectory of self-reflection, we begin to understand that, that the primary identity that we formed was given to us by other people and was given to us by people who saw the world in a different way than we saw it because of the rapid advancements in technology and information sharing and figuring out how the, or at least being able to record how the human brain responds in what we call real time. So there's this awareness that can I now begin to try out some other identities that might feel more like me. Am I, do I, that's what a secure attachment is. We measure it in a child who can come into a strange playroom with its mom and then after a moment or so leave the mom and go explore all the toys in the playroom, right? Looking back, seeing mom's there, but being able to play with the toys, right? The secure attachment. Insecure attachment is the child can't even um, examine all these potentially wonderful toys because they're afraid to leave their mother's side, right? And then we have other variations on those two extreme attachments. And, and that kind of sets a template for how we're gonna go through life. Yes, yes. And, and, and then at some point we begin, so the separation is I need to, and every parent knows this, I need to push my mom and my dad away and tell them I'm not like them, I'm not like them, I'm not like them. So I can try and figure out, well, who am I like? <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. So, so there is a development of an individual identity, uh, which is a, neuropsychological phenomena to a large extent. Um, yeah. It's also a function of education. Right, exactly. So that's the nature-nurture phenomena in uh, education, etc. And, and, and what I mean by education is the um, sharing of information about what the hu human potential is. Right, right. Okay, so... so when this type of development is going on, is it possible for children and adolescents to develop certainly an identity, but to develop it in such a way that does not carry the harmful conditioning of past generations? Well. That's a tough one. Well, it's not so tough. It's just a matter of how I want to talk about it. No, no, I mean, it might be tough for you, but it's... it's right, 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 right. And I think, I think your question kind of encapsulate 
where Western science has come in some ways. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I'm talking about this as an outsider, right? Yeah. Um, but this sense of what is epigenetics? Yes. What, what, what is, uh, now that the genome's been explored, right, the human genome, what is all of this stuff that they have no idea what these genes are doing, right? They used to call it junk DNA, but I think yeah. people are becoming more cautious about that and understanding that there's huge potential there if we understand it. Some of the older traditions, um, I don't know how to say this, um, if you believe in reincarnation, some of the older traditions will just blatantly say, this, this DNA that you carry all, carries the wisdom, the learning, the pain of all your lifetimes. And, and by, by extension, in terms of our biology, it's going to contain information from your lineage, your father's lineage and your mother's lineage, because that's where the DNA comes from. Right, exactly, exactly. So, as, as an individual is developing and you know, we're aiming towards self-mastery, seems to be this need to recognize one's one's conditioning one's behavioral patterns one's upbringing in fact to reach self-mastery one must be aware of their background their conditioning their development their, their identity but to get into a state of self-mastery all of that is what we're trying to master. We're trying to master ourselves. It's a mastery of the mind and of the identity and our reactions and all of that. Well, to master something, whatever it might be, it has to be there to begin with. So, for example, if I say that I want to master my emotions, emotions have to be there, first of all. Yes. Otherwise, what is there to master? If I say that I want to make the emotions more stable and I want to gain mastery over them, that means instability has to exist yes. for the instability, right? So it, it almost seems like that the entire developmental process is a stepping stone, it's like a foundation upon which one can go beyond that foundation. Well, I think that perhaps that's the ideal trajectory for the human person. And we may, in fact, at this point in history, be poised on um, an, a very interesting time. You know, when I spent some time in London, I used the underground a lot. It, it was great. It got me everywhere I wanted to go. But at least at that time, they used to have these announcements, you know, that would come out with it, when you were either getting off or getting on one of the the trains they would say mind the gap mind the gap mind the gap and finally somebody told me the gap is that space between the platform and the car itself because if your foot goes down there and gets caught it's very bad um, perhaps that's a good slogan in terms of minding the gap between who we've been conditioned, and I say conditioned by all of the neural networks that were laid down when we were so young, mm 
to be, to th how to see ourselves and how we see the world. Exactly. And the gap that we're actually poised to step over is in some ways the energy of belief that we're capable of so much more and that yes. capability lies within us whether it's capability in genetic material capability in using the higher order processes of our mind accessing a supra mind as well as a conscious mind and an unconscious mind and a subconscious mind exactly exactly so so Swinging back to the question of attachment, all of this is like the path that you've shown here. You know, from the development of the infant to teenage to childhood and identity development, there seems to be a lot of suffering. Uh, as uh, and also what Eckhart Eckhart Tolle would call the pain body. We were watching a video of him just uh, just yesterday during the dialogue. I showed a brief video. He talks about the pain body that there's like a you know pain that we're holding inside the body. That's what he means by that. <coughs> That seems to be a really big, big problem throughout humanity. We're holding so much difficulty, pain, suffering internally. Uh, what is the relationship between attachment and that? How does that pain body develop? Because it seems seems like in, even if you look at Buddhism, you look at so many other the spiritual teachers, they, they really talk about going beyond attachments, being free, a state of freedom beyond attachments. Um, what is your take on this? So the pain body is, is um, a phrase that I think is appropriate and apt. Um, the way I would, the way I do speak of it is that um, every cell in our body is a living part of me as an organism. And as a living, it, because it's living, there's awareness in the cell. So the cell is aware of all of my thoughts, all of my um, emotions, all of my f reactions to my physical pain or expansion. So every experience I have in some way is registered in the cells of my body. And I believe that's what he's referring to in terms of the pain body. So it's there, and, and many people talk about, yeah, you get enough of that in your cells, then you have a disease, a physical disease. This is what, what even Chetna talks about, uh, how the, the disturbances of the mind uh, are impacting the phys physiology of the body. This yes, the yes, future. exactly, exactly. So, so Dr. Chetna comes from medical training, right? I come from psychological training, but as nearly as I can tell, we're saying the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps the educational system or format that we came to this understanding is a bit different, but it's something like this that, that makes me have faith that this is the truth. You know, when many different people come to the same understanding from different pathways you know the old saying all roads lead to rome yes right. it's exactly. truth is truth no matter how it's phrased right and there's something about us as humans that if we can reduce the fear factor or the judgment factor around receiving new kinds of information 
we recognize truth because it resonates it resonates within us yes so just to follow up on that the attachments that we have in life we really have a hard time living without certain dependencies certain attachments interactions we don't live in isolation but it seems to me that there's a connection between what I would call entangled states Um, and that's what creates whatever that entanglement is is what creates or generates the pain body or some part of it may be may generate that. What do you say about that? I mean, maybe not all attachments do, but certainly the negative ones are certain bondages that are that are preventing the best flow of energy. Yes. Yeah. Because there's also bondage that we need. We cannot live in isolation. You right. Know, not all attachment is negative. Attachment has a certain role. It's needed also, it seems like. But there may be a state beyond it also. I don't know. What are your thoughts? So my thoughts are, I'm going to just talk a little bit about relationship, right? Yeah. Because an attachment is a form of relationship. Right. So when I think about relationship, again, I go back to energy as the common denominator and everything. Yeah. Um, I think about there are three energy fields in every single relationship. There's my right. energy field. There's your energy field, and then there's the field of energy of our relationship to each other. Exactly. And to have some very basic understanding of of the laws of energy, how energy flows and works, um, we come to a recognition that The energy I put into the relationship is from me. The energy you put into the relationship is from you. And the relationship is, and I'm going to use the word toxic here, more or less toxic, right? The relationship now, not me, not you, I'm talking about. The relationship is a function of the kind of energy both of us are putting into the relationship. Exactly. Exactly. And, and perhaps entanglement can be described energetically as, let's just say I'm entangled in a relationship with you. Now, that, cancel that, cancel that. It's not accurate, but, but for yeah. illustrative purposes. Yeah, for illustration. Um, so I'm, when you talk to me and ask me a question, if I... The energy in our relationship is one of, I'm afraid to disappoint you. I'm afraid to give you an answer you might not agree with. Then there's a great deal of fear in our relationship. And it can even go to the point where, let's say, I have a relationship with someone that I'm so afraid of saying something they don't like that that I'm afraid they might take out a gun and shoot me or they might beat me up, right? That that is how I would describe in well, one, that's one element of an entangled relationship. What keeps us in any variation of that from very little, let's say, entanglement to more intense is the fear that I can't live without you is and and that is always 
a primal fear that's on an unconscious level. We don't always recognize that because it's so basic. It goes right back to the infant who somehow knows that in order to be sheltered and fed and protected, they need to please the caregiver. And, and so that's a very well-used neural network that's guided us through life and it's worked up until now because we're here, we're not dead. And, and now there's the question of if we're even having this conversation, it's because I want to improve the quality of my life. And right. understanding who I am and how I am in the world is the tool that I have to use to do that. Exactly. See, that's that last statement you made, understanding who I am, at, who I am and how am I to live in the world? What is my relationship with the world? Because we're living in this world. You know, we're not living in some other world right now. We're living here. <clears throat> so as long as we're here, there is a great possibility of internal evolution further from, from the uh, states of um, pain and difficulties and, and harmful conflicts and, you know, to remove all of that, to evolve out of that. What, uh, is what angel wing is about is, is to get into personal transformation uh, but it seems like there's so much of this background about identity development how we are in the world our interactions with the world we don't realize how, what, what is happening on a day-to-day -day basis because before we get to I mean, self-mastery and all that may sound very nice and that is where it sounds very good probably to anybody by listening to it but to even get to approach even anything like that it seems like there seems to be so much of an awareness about where we are, what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, I would say that's what people throughout history have been talking about. I, I can only address the history, excuse me, the history that I'm aware of. But yes. introspection, psychology, that was psychology's first attempt at becoming a quote-unquote science. Let's study how our mind works through introspection, right? Yes. Now, yes. And, 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 and it seems to me that other meditative traditions have said, yes, that's the goal of meditation, is to still what's often called the monkey mind, the mind that's running a mile a minute, you know, uh, a mile a second, perhaps, with thought, 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 and to be able to recognize that and to find some techniques to actually slow down enough to become more conscious of what's going on inside of us. So the development of an attachment is a transactional process. Yep. Right? Yes. And to be aware of that transactional process is something that seems to lead to freedom. Can you say about that? You know, this sense of freedom. We all want to be free, but we don't know what that, what does that mean actually? Yeah, yeah. If, if attachments are there, are we free while holding and carrying thousands of attachments? So, so to become aware, you know, for many people, me included, Becoming aware is the first step. 
in in the work of evolution of consciousness. Right. So this you have to be exposed to the fact that whatever my common everyday experience of life is not the full potential of human awareness. That I'm missing out on a lot here. Yeah. Yeah, so but until somebody tells me, hey, did you know? You have a subconscious and unconscious and a conscious, but you also have a superconscious mind, right? Hey, did you know you can begin to look at what's coming through that mind? Hey, did you know you can, with great effort and diligence and dedication, begin to choose the thoughts you're going to entertain? And because our thoughts resonate throughout our entire body, that's going to change our physical health as well as our relationship with others and our relationship to ourselves. Well, that's a big thing, you know, to be able to choose one's thoughts because as, since we've been talking about attachment and, you know, it's all connected together, attachment and what we mean by love and all these different areas, different ways of continuing to probe these uh, truths, it really seems like there is such an internal possibility of the evolution forward you know say to be open to the possibility that i can evolve beyond where i am now now wherever that might be given the range of experiences one has in life many people are just trying just repeating those same experiences thinking they will evolve further yes necessarily (laughs) well i've heard it several times recently um within the context of CDC's mandate that people who are vaccinated can take off their masks, whatever. I don't want to get into that particular thing, but I've heard the quote, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and expecting a different result. Yes, exactly. So, you know, now that that phrase is like in the common parlance of our culture these days, it occurs to me that there is some evolution in consciousness about am i doing that wow why am i doing that is that true is my repeating how i interact with my next door neighbor in the same way every time expecting my neighbor to i don't know do something that i want him to do (laughs) that he hasn't done for 10 years is expecting that that's a definition of being insane right so it reposits my earlier example of three um, categories of energy fields in any relationship it allows me to revisit if what i put into the relationship may or may not change the other's behavior in the relationship i can begin to understand that really the locus of my control is within me it's within yes so so that really yes that really sounds so beautiful in the sense that locus of control is within me which is then talking about or referring to possibly a further cerebral evolution 
that there is a further brain evolution, that the brain's connections are changing and developing in new ways. And that neuroplasticity, that synaptogenesis, neurogenesis, new connections being, being created, new perspectives opening up, all of that is a it seems to me it's a dynamic evolution. Could you make some comments about that? What, what, what you, what's your take on that? Yes, yes. And that relates to the very first things I said about how the neural networks in our brain are laid down yes. from, well, basically in utero on, but certainly massively from the moment we're born on. And they're a yes. function of our environment. Yes. How, and, and there, it's like I was born with a contact lens right and i didn't know it so i think the world is kind of on this blue spectrum and then for some reason now in my life i get a head injury and they look and they say oh my god you've got this blue contact lens in your eyes and they take it out and it, all of a sudden it's like oh my god i thought i knew what the world was i thought i knew who i am yes it's a whole new game here, right? So exactly. the neuroplasticity is the awakening of our consciousness to the fact that I can make a difference in one understanding who I am, making yes. a choice of what I want to keep and what I want to change. And that's a big point right there. What I want to keep, what I want to change. I, I mean, that itself is huge. Yeah. To even give ourselves permission to think, I, no matter how old I am, I can change myself and my relationship. I'm just going to say the world, and that includes yes. all the relationships I have, right? Yes. In yes. this human body. So, I, I mean, what, what, what kind of a gift is that to be allowed to even yes. contemplate that? Because... Up until the point where, where those stop being words and start being a potential for me and my own life, yes, yes, um, I, I'm locked, right? I'm locked into the old notion, the Freudian notion that who you are by seven years old is who you're going to be till the day you die. There's very little you can do to change any of that. That was a lie. Well, I don't know, purpose lie it was a definite misunderstanding of human potential. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, for anybody at really any age to say, yes. I can grow from where I am now in simple language, you know, without getting into too much technical language of psychology, uh, just a basic notion that I can grow from where I am now, but I also need to have some understanding of what I'm growing into. Yes, that's the choice. I mean, if I, I can choose to not be um, subservient to everybody I see as an authority figure, right? Okay. But unless I challenge myself to explore what that might look like and what that might feel like, how can I form a new neural network that's going to affect the changes that allow me to stop being subservient out of fear to all authority figures. Right. Right? Sure. And, sure. and I, what I want to say right here is, for me, this is the point where I have to say, 
I don't know how to do this outside of community. So the, 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 the immense potential of being a part of Angel Wing in whatever role we pay, whether it's the role of showing up to hear other people talk, whether it's the role of adding my own voice to the discussion, it doesn't matter. That this, this exposure to different ways of thinking and being allow me to start exploring the potential of my mind to imagine myself as differently, as a different kind of person. Right, exactly. So whatever direct experience an individual has of imbalance, agitation, um, being stuck in harmful patterns, if that, that awareness has to come that I, I, I seem to be stuck here. You know, to, be, to, to be even aware that one is stuck, it seems to, be, seems to be that that is unequivocally necessary before one can move out of it. Yeah, I think it, after being alive and having a functioning brain, I think yes. it's the first step. It's the first step. Yes. Uh, yes. But, but, but most of humanity doesn't seem to be in that step. Well, I think that part of what's going on with this and, and I, I believe there's a shift in consciousness um, yes. in humanity. I see things happening in my, our, our country that we're living in yes. that we hoped would happen in the 1960s when we were demonstrating and doing whatever, but they didn't happen. I see that there's a potential now for that evolution in consciousness to yes. take hold perhaps in government and education and healthcare. Exactly. Um, I think that one of the basic, basic foundational thoughts to be able to contemplate is when I find myself, when I see myself in ways that I don't like or I don't care for, if I can avoid beating myself up for being here, if I can stop blaming myself or my environment, and simply look at the energy and sit with the energy that is so terrifying on some level because exactly. I haven't looked at it before. Right. And we always fill, when we really don't know something, we always fill in the blank with the worst possible scenario. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that, that in itself is to be kind to ourselves to understand that we've done a, an enormous amount of work to end up even listening to a conversation like this. Oh, this is a, extraordinary. I mean, there's no, there's no question about the, the, this type of conversation. But this is what people need to hear. Yes. You know, hear so many things. The hearing is one thing, but our, our request to Angel is for them to enter into the dialogue, into the conversation. It is such a or Dr. Berman or anybody else uh, uh, Dr. Chaitan or others who are, uh, are going to be connected with us in the future, that, that we, are in, we are posing as an authority figure that you, are, you know, we know better than you, we are wanting to share with you. Yeah, I don't, I, I hold myself as a beginner in terms of learning what life is. I hold myself as a beginner, as a student not as the master and the teacher. No, exactly. And, and self-mastery, whatever it may be in its, in its culmination, 
is directly experiential. Yes. Somebody, it's not that Angel Wing or some other organization is going to give a certificate on the forehead or some stamp on the forehead. Now you've reached, reached out the self mastery. We're not going to be doing that. You know, so so it, it seems to be that's experience. Maybe you want to say something about that also, and then maybe tie that back into the whole question of attachment. You know, attachment and self mastery. What is the connection between the two? So. Um, perhaps I can speak about authority. I see the energy of authority as coming in two general ways. One is conferred authority, the other is earned authority. So I would say conferred, and what made me think of it was getting the stamp on my forehead that I'd passed the angel wing, whatever, right? Yeah. That we're, what we're not doing, right? Um, so, you know, somebody passes a test to become a policeman and they're given a badge and a gun. A lot of authority is conferred on them by that. Exactly. And so we deal with a lot of authority figures in our lives where authority has been conferred. Then there are people who we have learned to listen to and engage with because our experience of them and with them has been rich and enriching. So they've earned the right to be an authority in some ways, in some areas. We will allow them to talk to us about something because they aren't going to force us to believe them. They aren't going to punish us if we don't do what they're telling us to do. We feel safe enough to listen. So this notion of we have the power to confer authority on the people around us. And perhaps the entanglement, the, the attachments that tend to hurt us or, or stunt our growth emotionally are coming out of, for some reason, we got involved with this person and because of how they show up in our life, they had this conferred authority on them. They didn't earn our trust. We gave it our trust to them out of fear. Exactly. And to be able to look at that and then come back to, okay, the energy and energy that I'm putting in this relationship is fear. Exactly. I can change that, right? I may not be able to change how they interact with me, but I can stop, or at least I can start recognizing the fear in the relationship and make some deep inquiry about what can I change about the relationship that feels safe enough. And maybe, maybe it's baby steps. Maybe it's one giant step in saying, this is over, I'm moving on. You know, but, but to give ourselves the authority to direct how the relationship is going to go. That, that, is, that is very, very powerful. I, I mean, and that's true across the board with, yes. with all different kinds of interactions, with all different kinds of people, with friends, with with different foods, with different tastes, with different um, uh, other sensory experiences. I mean, there's, it's a relationship that's you know one is in relationship with all the all of life in in, in, in some form or other. 
And that last statement you were just making that one can deliberately take action, one can deliberately choose the type of relationship, the quality of the relationship, yes. how much to go into the relationship, how far to go into it. Those are all aspects of self-mastery. That's what I hear. I mean, I, I don't know. Yes, that's a very good summary. And, and I would offer that a critical part of this work in my experience has been to examine in detail, fearlessly, my relationship to myself. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, at, right. so, so, and in that process, I, I, I've often become aware of that the self that I have a relationship with is not the me that I feel that I am. It's the right. me I who I was told I was. Yes, yes. And yes, so yes. the miracle of neuroplasticity is just because for many years, do you know what I mean? I internalized right. that I'm the whatever, I'm the problem solver in my family, I'm the this or I'm the that, doesn't mean that that's who I really am or who I need to continue to be. I have the choice to confer the authority on myself to say, it's time to change. And I'm powerful and I, I, I work for good, the good for myself as well as others. And I can do this. I am doing this simply by listening to this conversation that we're having. That's a step towards being a mirror being shown to me that I have power that I'm not even using. Exactly. And to be able to even listen to this type of conversation yes. in the form of a podcast. And then what I would request, and we'll, and we'll give that information out to the participants, that we're encouraging them to be active in the dialogue, to be active in the conversation of exploration of these ideas. You've made 20, 25 or more incredible points today on so many different aspects of attachment and interaction and identity development and self-mastery. But to be able to genuinely look at that silently, it's almost like a silent looking, you know, the hearing, I, mean, I, I, I would even recommend that if someone's listening to this podcast, as they're listening, they hit pause at different times, make some notes, take some, take some uh, time to really reflect on what is being said, ask yourself, is this true? Where do, where do I stand with that? What are my thoughts? And then they can write about it, maybe say something about it, record about it. And, and that way they are in the dialogue with us, maybe not physically, but still they're still with us because otherwise it's just, you know, one passive listening is one yeah. thing, hearing. And even if someone says, I agree with 100% with what Dr. Berman is saying, all right, you agree with her, now what? Yes, I would just offer a suggestion. Um, if you haven't tried journaling, I encourage you to just get a little notebook and a pen or pencil, whatever, yeah, exactly. and perhaps set yourself a task and say, five minutes for the next week, I'm going to write whatever comes to my mind, because there's no right or wrong, good or bad about this, in answer to the question, who am I? And just write anything that comes out for five minutes 
I, yeah. I mean, think about it and then write what comes up. And then tomorrow, think about it and write what comes up. And, and at the end of the week, look and see what's evolved for me in terms yes. of asking myself that question. Exactly, exactly. So if, if a person does that, then they become a reflector of just what's within them. Yes. And how often do we give ourselves permission to take our senses and our thoughts internally as opposed to externally? The news is telling me what's going on in the world and how I should feel about it. You know, it, we're sensual beings and so our senses take us outward. But there are many traditions that say the process of growth, human growth, consciousness growth, perhaps reaching enlightenment of what the true potential of the human species is, is one of looking within, of allowing the senses to be turned internally. So instead of my ear listening to what you know, the newscaster is saying, in these five minutes, my ear is listening to my thoughts about who am I. And I'm using my brain and my hand to write that down because it really changes how I understand what I'm thinking yes, by yes, writing it down. That's my, not that I'm a slave to journalism, to journaling, but using your hand and your eyes engages more of your brain than just thinking a thought. Yes. Writing is a whole brain activity, particularly hand, uh, handwriting it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that becomes a very personal conversation with oneself also. Yeah, and, and wow, maybe the best person that I'll ever meet on this planet is me. Wouldn't it be a shame if I lived <laughs> and died and never met me? Right, exactly, exactly. No, they, they, these are really just uh, tremendous ideas. and. You know, there's so much to be said for um, interaction with other people. We, there's no way of progress in isolation. I mean, of course, there are some people who are just you know, doing some focused meditation for some periods of time or some spiritual practice or something like that. But for the most part, interaction with others is part of life. But at the same time, there is a need for just spending time with yourself uh, in just solitude to reflect. And so there's a place for that too, it seems like. Yes, and I think in our very busy world, you know, I, I remember when there were all this labor-saving devices came into the world, and I was thinking, oh, well, you know, now you don't have, whatever, you don't have to spend so much time doing dishes because you have a dishwasher. Or yeah. writing letters because now you have a computer, or any of those things. But with all of that innovation has come greater and greater and greater demand for me to do yeah. more and more and more and more. Yeah, so exactly. it's so easy to go through a whole day and never spend any time with me. Exactly, exactly. Uh, because we're always running away, running in something or running towards something or reacting to something. But just the, just the time to just be with oneself, which may be very uncomfortable in the beginning for many people. They just haven't done that. Right. I would say if, if you do what, what, what we are suggesting to spend five minutes a day for a week and just see what happens, yes. that 
frequently, and it was certainly true for me when I started this work, um, it was like, oh my God, my mind is insane. I, 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 who knew that it could generate so many thoughts in such a short period of time and such nonsense thinking? Oh my God, I, this is terrible. I don't want to know this about myself. Yeah. But with practice, what did they say? You know, to become a tennis champion, you have to have so many thousands and thousands of hours of practicing hitting a tennis ball with a tennis racket. Exactly. So if we want to have mastery over our own mind so that the mind isn't the master, but a tool that our consciousness can use, yeah. then we have to put some time in. Exactly. And to recognize that that's what it is. It's a tool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the master. Be right. Because a lot, I think, of what happens when you begin this work in earnest is you start to recognize your internal critic and how absolutely inhumane and cruel our internal critics are. We say inside of ourselves, mostly subconsciously, the most horrendous things to ourselves. We probably would never speak them out loud to other people. Do, do you know to tell, to say, oh, you are just a total failure. Nothing you can do in life is right, right? We, we typically don't say that to people, but our minds got some kind of variation of that, that they're, it's running by us all the time. Exactly, exactly. All right, that's a beautiful exposition. I want to thank all the listeners to this podcast. Uh, we are going to be um, taking these audios and podcasts and doing a lot with it, making slides and making YouTube videos and so many things. I want to express uh, my many, many thanks and gratitude and um, uh, best wishes for Dr. Berman, who is with us all the time. Uh, she is a fountain of wisdom, knowledge, experience. You know, her demeanor is very calming, very compassionate. Uh, the mark of a really evolved being, this is my opinion, certainly. Uh, and not just mine, but others have said the same thing. Uh, and uh, that is a big blessing for the whole world. Uh, that is why uh, we are encouraging each person to listen carefully to her words, reflect carefully, ask questions, be part of the discussion, be part of the dialogue, go through the process of transformation that is out, that is expressed in multiple ways through the Angel Wing program. Uh, and again, uh, my name is Sachin, I'm part of the QTP program. Uh, for more information about Angel Wing, the QTP program, or any of the presenters, or any of the other meditative programs that are ongoing, on, please contact us. You can go to theangelwing.com. All the, all the information is there, all the links are there. Once again, thank you very much, Dr. Berman. And, Sachin, uh, may I say one thing? Please, yes. So, uh, in conclusion right now, I would just like to offer you that anything you see in me or Dr. Chetna, or Sachin, understand that that potential lies within yourself because you could not recognize it in someone else if it wasn't within you. So allow yourself to have faith in you. Beautiful. That's a very uh, extraordinary sentiment and very great teaching. So uh, thank you very much for, for, for all the time you spent, and uh, we will see you next time. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's stop this here.